You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode 10. Chapter 15. One does not usually associate castration with roast beef, but I do. My life's dream of becoming a woman came closer to becoming reality when I met Bambi. She was an attractive blonde French-Canadian female impersonator who had performed in numerous nightclubs. She had a personal friend in New York who had undergone successful sex change surgery. From her, she obtained the address of a doctor in Yonkers, New York, who would perform an orchidectomy castration for a reasonable fee. But the money required, together with the travel expenses, was more than I had saved, so I went to several of my friends for loans. I had earlier arranged with another transsexual friend to have the castration operation performed on her when I had mine. She had to dress as a male until we arrived in New York because she didn't have any female identification for going through immigration. I had. We left for New York a few days later, having set up a definite appointment with the Yonkers doctor. It was the July 4th weekend, 1969. Why I felt so great, I will never know. Of course, I didn't know just how serious and painful the surgery would be. I had spent so many years in the valley that this seemed the beginning of reaching for the summit. We checked our baggage with Air Canada, and finding we had a 20-minute delay, went to a coffee shop to kill time. We were so engrossed in discussing our hopes and fears that we didn't hear our flight being called. My God, I think we've missed our plane, I said, glancing in panic at my watch. Let's go and check. I grabbed my handbag and slammed the 40 cents down in front of the cashier as we raced toward the check-in counter. Una followed close behind. We called the flight more than 10 minutes ago, miss, a condescending ticket agent advised us, looking at the clock behind him. Our next flight is fully booked. If your business is urgent, I suggest you check one of the other airlines. American, Eastern, and Mohawk fly to New York. What about our luggage? Una snapped. You don't have to worry. It'll be waiting for you at the Air Canada baggage claim at Kennedy. If it's there for any length of time, it will be locked away until your arrival. Just make sure you don't lose your baggage claims, he said. I suggest you check with American right away. Their counter is down there to my right, he mumbled, pointing to a section adjoining the U.S. Customs. There was a long line, which was not surprising, considering the 4th of July weekend is the busiest travel period between the United States and Canada. I checked each airline in turn. The answer was always the same. Sorry, nothing available. I decided to call Edward, a mutual friend of ours, and ask him if he would drive us to Buffalo, about 80 miles south of Toronto. He agreed. I was determined nothing was going to deter me now from having the first stage of my sex change performed. I had waited too long for this day. On arriving in Buffalo, we found that we could only get a flight to Newark, and there was still our luggage at Kennedy to worry about. We splurged and flew by helicopter from Newark to JFK and miraculously found our bags waiting for us. We hailed a taxi, gave him the doctor's address in Yonkers, and climbed in. Una decided she wanted to be a woman again. After all, she reasoned, she was en route to having part of her male body removed. To the dismay of the taxi driver, who prior to this was convinced he'd witnessed everything there was to see in life, she proceeded to take off her clothes in the back seat and put on all her female attire. It took most of the journey to arrange her blonde wig and put put on her nylons, makeup, and dress. The poor driver just stared and stared through the rearview mirror, too dumbfounded to utter a word. I'm sure if it had been a shorter ride, he 
would have asked us to get out. I sensed he was both embarrassed and uneasy, but fares from Queens to Yonkers were not that easy to come by, so he just let his eyes roll heavenward while the look of incredulity on his face grew more pronounced as the miles ticked by. We arrived in Yonkers and located the doctor's office without too much difficulty. As we were about to pay the cabbie, I grew tense. Suppose he reported us to the police, or worse, the immigration service. I was reminded of so many of the times in my life when I had lived in fear of discovery. But somehow today was different. Here I was in a foreign country. My fears were unwarranted. The driver's only comment as I handed him a $20 bill was, Don't tell me you're going to turn into a guy now, I said testily. Of course not. Whatever makes you think that? He grinned broadly and handed me the change. Well, no, it's all right keep the change, I said, in a sudden burst of generosity. We hurried inside. We were seen by the doctor, who set our appointment for 10 a.m. the following morning. The nurse directed us to a nearby motel that she assured us would have a vacancy. We phoned for a taxi and left. The day's travel had tired us both, so almost as if we were enjoying a vacation, we freshened up, reapplied our makeup, and went down to the cocktail lounge for a few drinks. Later in bed, I reflected that here I was about to undergo surgery within hours, and I felt no fear. With these thoughts, I drifted off to sleep. I slept soundly, until awakened by Una, tugging at the sheets. Come on, Diana, show a leg. Our appointment's in an hour. Hurry it up or we'll be late. The speed with which we both dressed was unbelievable. I was pleased we had overslept, because we were both so preoccupied with arriving at the doctor's office at 10 a.m. We didn't have any time to develop the tensions that often precede surgery. As soon as we were both dressed, I telephoned for a cab. Within minutes, we were on our way, and soon we were deposited at our destination. I hesitated at the entrance. Normally, I would have gone barging in, but I knew this was no routine visit to a doctor's office. It had been prearranged for Uno to go first. Before the doctor went into his office, I asked him if it was possible for me to have a drink. I suddenly had become panic-stricken. Sure, help yourself, he said, handing me a bottle of white label. The unending silence from the adjoining room troubled me. To console myself, I poured another scotch. I reflected that the only way I would be able to enter the office was to become half-drunk. I suffered a heightened sense of aloneness. The door opened and Una appeared. Her face was ashen white. I will always admire her for the way she acted, even after undergoing this operation. She smiled bleakly at me and said, It was nothing. Go on, Diana. It will be over before you know it. She kissed me lightly on the cheek. The doctor said, You may go in now, Diana. As I disrobed, I wondered how many previous castrations he had performed. Surely they couldn't be as commonplace as a tonsillectomy. The doctor was kindly and sympathetic. I'm going to give you a local anesthetic. Try to relax. I assumed it would be painful, and I was right. After 13 needles in various parts of the groin, an incision in the scrotum, muffled, stifled screams, hushed conversation between doctor and nurse, glaring lights, renting flesh, sundry sutures. Diana, the half-drunk man, became a very sober eunuch. I dressed and joined Una. As we left, the doctor handed us prescriptions for painkillers, which we immediately filled in the hospital pharmacy. Surprisingly, both Una and I felt elated. The drugs and the freezing still numbed any pain, and we were both so deliriously happy to have had this done that we left giddy with joy. I hadn't really planned on spending the post-operative hours flirting in the motel cocktail lounge, but that's just what transpired. I was aware of two very brown eyes, a fellow sitting on the adjoining bar stool, eyeing me invitingly. Can I buy you girls a drink? I nodded noncommittally. Una and I sat sipping our drinks, secretly marveling at what had just happened to us. Suddenly, without warning, the pain struck. I felt a warm trickle of blood ooze down my legs. 
Una, let's get out of here, I whispered to her in alarm. I'm starting to bleed. Give me a hand and let's get the hell to our room. I gripped Una's arm tightly as she eased me gently down from the bar stool. She led me slowly toward the elevator. We barely reached the room because I could hardly walk. Una, get me a glass of water, please. My request went undone as I collapsed on the bed in a state of delirium. For three days, we suffered together. A telephone call to the front desk left unwanted cleaning women at a cautious distance. The same method was used to order sandwiches that we requested be left outside our door. Neither of us could walk. It was too agonizingly painful. So we perfected a way of crawling on all fours to open the door slightly and grab the tray to pull it inside. On the fourth day, we were able to survey the room and each other. It horrifyingly revealed bloodstained towels, sheets, and blankets. In all, it looked more like a case of an illegal, unsuccessful abortion than a castration. Slowly, we dressed and packed our bags. We gathered the soiled linen and threw it in a heap on the bathroom floor. We paid our bill, checked out, and told the taxi driver to take us to a good restaurant. We were literally starved for a square meal. We stopped before a restaurant and, leaving our luggage at the entrance, selected a table. We sat quietly for a moment, eagerly perusing the ample menu. Then we signaled the waiter and placed our order. Our selection was ill-chosen. We both ordered roast beef, and it tasted a bit peculiar. But we assumed it was our lack of eating that was playing havoc with our taste buds. We were ravenously hungry, so we ate without question. En route back home, we were violently ill with vomiting and stomach cramps. I cannot now eat roast beef without remembering my castration. Our nausea persisted for the better part of the return journey by bus to Toronto. It undermined our sense of achievement as we cautiously replied to the questioning of the Canadian customs official before crossing the border. How long were you out of the country? Five days, I replied weakly. Did you bring anything back? No, I said. I glanced at Una and smiled as the officer started to question another returning traveler. No, I whispered in her ear. But let's tell him we left our balls floating in the Hudson River. She giggled. It was growing dark outside as the bus drew into the Bay Street bus terminal. I kissed Una a quick goodbye, promised to call the following morning, and took a taxi back home. At 9 a.m. the next morning, I returned belatedly from an extended 4th of July weekend. At 9 a.m. the next morning, I returned belatedly from an extended 4th of July weekend to my secretarial duties. The irony of my situation was, now that I was a eunuch, there was absolutely no guarantee I would be able to have the remainder of the necessary surgery performed in Canada. In contrast to my acceptance of my former situation, my new stance became one of aggressiveness and impatience for action. In August, I approached the gynecological department of the Toronto General Hospital and was interviewed by Dr. W. H. Alamang. He assured me the operation was viable, but he pointed out that there was the necessity of forming the necessary team of doctors to consist of a plastic surgeon, a urologist, a gynecologist, and an endocrinologist. A few weeks later, after our first meeting, he advised me that the Clark Institute of Psychiatry was forming a gender identity clinic under the chairmanship of Dr. Betty Steiner. Dr. Alamang arranged an appointment for the two of us to meet her as soon as possible. The Clark Institute, named after the late Dr. C.K. Clark, the first professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, has been operating a little over four years. The building is located at the corner of College and Huron Streets in Midtown Toronto. There is available space for 185 patients in its 14 stories. 
Among its many unique features is the wearing of street clothes by doctors, nurses, and patients, eliminating white, starched uniforms. Armed with my file in his briefcase, Dr. Alamang and I arrived there to meet Dr. Steiner. As I walked up the sweeping steps towards the doorway, set off by stark white columns, I remembered with horror my stay at a similar establishment in Panoka, Alberta, several years before. Dr. Steiner, a petite English lady in her early 40s, spent several hours with us discussing the course of psychiatric evaluation I would be required to undergo before her group could endorse me for surgery. Because both the Toronto General Hospital and Clark Institute were now working as a team with regard to any forthcoming sex change operations, no surgery would be performed without the explicit endorsement of the gender clinic. I was shocked and upset by this information. I thought that I would be required to meet with Dr. Steiner once, or at the most twice, before surgery could be performed. I showed my annoyance with a display of hysteria and tears culminating in a mild temper tantrum, much to the consternation of poor Dr. Alamang. But none of the devices ruffle Betty Steiner. I have since discovered she is completely unflappable. There was nothing to do but resign myself to several months of intensive psychiatric evaluation. I really did not have much choice, for I knew also that if I was approved for surgery, all the costs would be borne by the Ontario government under OHSIP, the Medicare plan of the province of Ontario. The reason for such lengthy and detailed psychoanalysis is because of the absolute irrevocability of the surgery. Here is one example of where it's not good to be too much of a woman. There is no room for a change of mind. In September, the program went into full operation, and I discovered, to my ecstatic joy, that I was to be the first patient. I was admitted to the Clark Institute as an outpatient. I had appointments with various people, including psychiatrists, psychologists, sexologists, social workers, and a lawyer. With a social worker, I discussed my everyday life at work, home, and my leisure activities. She advised me she would have to interview my parents. Ultimately, she assigned a Northern Ontario social worker to conduct the actual interviews and send back a written report. The lawyer discussed my legal status in the light of my proposed sexual change, its implications, and my legal status under Canadian law. The psychiatrists and psychologists analyzed me with exhaustive verbal interviews and written tests, trying to determine firsthand if there was any way in which I could adjust to a masculine role. When they realized this was futile because I was truly a transsexual, they worked to determine my suitability for surgery and my subsequent life as a woman. The sexologist placed most of his emphasis on my past sexual life and future sexual aspirations and desires. I found one of the prerequisites qualifying me for surgical intervention was the fact I had cross-dressed for such a lengthy period of time. My past continuous employment as a female also stood me in good stead, and having never lived with a man went very much in my favor. In the latter part of the year, I had blood drawn on a daily basis for 30 consecutive days. On the weekend, it was drawn at Women's College Hospital. I was advised that if I missed even one day, I would have to begin the sequence all over again. I completed the assignment. The Gender Identity Clinic divided the entire course into what they called protocols. Upon completion of each, my file was examined by a committee whose vote was a deciding factor as to whether or not I would be allowed to continue to the next stage. I completed each one successfully. 
In the spring of 1970, I was told to take two weeks' leave of absence from my job in order to be admitted to the Clark Institute as an inpatient. I was given a detailed hourly schedule that kept me moving from doctor to social worker to psychiatrist to psychologist on almost an hourly basis. On our floor, there were both men and women patients. We ate meals together and shared a communal lounge. There were separate bedrooms for men and women, though some adjoined. I was given my own private room. I remember one patient who had a serious weight problem that was not caused by overeating. She had tried every imaginable diet, but still her weight hovered around the 200-pound mark. Prior to my arrival, all the patients on my floor had been advised of my unique situation. Upon being told, one patient, who considered himself ultra-masculine, said to a nurse, well, he'd better not come near me or I'll suck him one. However, after meeting me, he was so impressed by both my appearance and personality that he went out of his way to be friendly. We used to sit by the hour working out crossword puzzles together. The most distasteful test was when I had an apparatus attached to my penis. It consisted of a condom within a test tube that fitted snugly over my penis. This in turn was hooked up to a pressure gauge and the results were recorded in an adjoining room. As part of the test, I was shown a series of anatomical pictures of naked and clothed men, women, and children. When I realized just how personal, prying, and in my estimation, degrading this was, I flung the contraption from my body, put on my clothes, and stomped from the room. I reported to Dr. Steiner, and she advised me I was a volunteer participant in any test, and my refusal to take any test would in no way preclude me from surgery. Thus assured, I decided to discontinue this one. During the final days of my stay, I met several of the surgeons who were to form the operating team for my first sex change operation. Dr. Steiner, whom I had seen daily, tried even on day 10 to dissuade me from the surgery, pointing out how irrevocable it was. One of the interviews was videotaped, and previously, the institute photographer had taken nude stills of me. As arranged, I was discharged on the final day and obliged to await the decision of the committee. Within weeks, I was informed of their conclusion, which recommended sex reassignment. I was to be Canada's first sex change, and the date was set for April 20, 1970. During my final interview on April 16th, Dr. Steiner showed me in detail diagrams of the proposed surgery. She explained the procedure to be used. It would be the Edgerton technique devised at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. My penis would be denuded by rolling back its cover and using the sheath to form a new vagina. It would be sensitized and thus orgasm would be made possible. Penal nerve ends would be positioned to form my clitoris with the scrotum being drawn up to form the inner and outer lips of the labia. My urethra would be shortened to conform to my new female organs. She went on to explain that a skin graft from my thigh would form a vaginal lining. After she finished her lengthy explanation, I asked dozens of questions. To me, it all seemed so complicated and somewhat miraculous. I was intrigued. The surgery would be performed in an observation operating theater and would be viewed by medical students. A documentary film of the operative procedure would be made for future medical reference. My parting words to Dr. Steiner were, Dr. Steiner, this is Mr. Boilo saying goodbye. She threw her arms around me and kissed me. I was admitted to the Toronto General Hospital on the eve of the operating day. My final night's rest as a man was strangely tranquil. 
that morning I awoke, brushed my teeth, removed my finger and toenail varnish, and braided my hair. No sooner had I completed these toiletries than a nurse appeared to gown me. She shrouded my feet in pillowcases. My entire bed was wheeled into the elevator, which whisked me to the operating floor. I was left for a few minutes on my bed outside the theater. Several doctors passed by and reassured me with kind words and good wishes. The doors of the operating theater opened wide and I was wheeled inside. They placed me on the operating table. I saw bright lights, instruments, and masked faces peering anxiously at me. The anesthetist approached, took my left hand, and extended my arm onto a wooden board. I glanced to my left and saw a poised hypodermic needle. I felt it enter my vein. Colored circles floated above me. I felt strangely cold, then nothing. Epilogue. Oblivion. Sudden awakening from a void. First, the awareness. An awareness of living, of breathing, of pain, of self. My stupefied senses began a reconstruction of my immediate and personal world. A world that had become a place unto itself, with oceans of pain and valleys of anguish. Slowly, I became conscious of the throb of sound. Footsteps, laughter, clatter, voices, the throb of pain, Then one voice emerged, nurse, nurse, with a low expectant urgency. There was no reply to the voice, just silence. Yes, yes, what do you want, Mrs. Freeman? We're busy, you know. Hurried, harried footsteps of the nurse somewhere beyond my bed. Footsteps, heavy footsteps, that seemed to be coming toward me. Almost silently, a nurse pushed open the door and peered at me anxiously. Did she expect to see a corpse, I wondered? How are you? she asked, smiling gently. Where am I? I asked in a muffled voice that did not seem to belong to me. Just relax. Go to sleep. The doctor will be along to see you in a few minutes. As she withdrew, I found myself listening to the sharp tattoo of her heels as she teetered on her way. When the doctor eventually arrived, he came to meet a resurgence of life. For me, this was not the end. It was the beginning, my second beginning. I was now, anatomically, a woman. I gave the doctor what I thought was one of my fragile, compelling, little girl looks. I am sure I looked like a little girl with my soap and water scrub face, devoid of makeup, my red hair childishly tied in two braids. Fragile? Yes, very. Compelling? No. How are you feeling, Diana? He asked, his voice not very successfully camouflaging a note of urgency. First time you've really looked at me in days. You're always sleeping. Wake up! Wake up! I drowsily lifted my eyelids, dropping them down again as my chin and head fell heavily forward. To all intents and purposes, I was asleep. It was a sleep of peace. All my dejection, born of past failure, had left me. Three months later, I had recuperated sufficiently to be discharged. I remember that morning well, as I threaded my way precariously through the maze of corridors at the Toronto General Hospital, refusing the usual assistance of a wheelchair. I wore a carefree look, an attitude, Because, at last, I was carefree, as carefree as the burden of being in Canada's first sex change would allow one to be. My world, on that Monday morning, was a kind of Valhalla. I wore the air of a woman aware she is truly feminine. As I walked down the hospital steps toward the waiting taxi, my suitcase in hand, I experienced sort of rhapsody, an ecstasy before the cadence. Behold, I am a woman. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Christine Denby of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive. <laughs>